I'm going to read uh, uh, the first 13 verses. You can find it on page 1205 of the Pew Bible if you're looking for it, or maybe you can uh, read on the screen or on a digital device. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. Amen. Hillsdale College has a newsletter, and if you have any of the old newsletters of Empress, uh, it has this slogan under its title, and that is this idea of ideas, because ideas have consequences. Let me give you an illustration of that. Uh, Chicago, a big, huge American city, has uh, their own motto, and that is the second city. And many, many people uh, today think that comes from when in 19, I mean 1890, it became the second largest American uh, city. It, it, it surpassed Philadelphia in the 1890 uh, census. But that is not where it got its name. For one thing, it's no longer the second largest city. That would be Los Angeles. But back in uh, uh, 1871, Chicago was known as an awful place to live. It was known as an awful place because crime was rampant, corruption in government allowed it to happen, prostitution was uh, legal, and there was unhealthy environment to live. That is, uh, Chicago was where cattle went and uh, pigs went to be slaughtered. Hundreds of thousands of pigs and chickens and cows went to Chicago to be slaughtered. And, and what do you do with all of the waste? What do you do with all the blood? You, you begin to think about how much blood uh, was flowing in those slaughterhouses. It had to have somewhere to go. They had built special pipes from these factories, these slaughterhouses that emptied into Lake Michigan. 
And then when they were done uh, harvesting all of the meat out of the pigs, the chickens, and the and uh, the cows, they had these carcasses that they also dumped into Lake Michigan. And we wonder why it's not safe to swim in Lake Michigan. Well, we can thank Mrs. O'Leary's cow who knocked over a lantern that burned Chicago to the ground. But it gave an opportunity to the fathers and mothers of Chicago to create a second city, a do-over, if you will, an opportunity to say, okay, that's who we were, but let's be something else because nobody wants to live here and it's not healthy to live here. And so that's what they did. And it became so popular that in nine years, it doubled the size of Chicago. And within 19 years, it became the second largest city in the United States. That's why it's called the second city, because it's the second Chicago. Now, this should tell you also a little bit of something about the church, that even though you and I are the second Bruce, the second EP, the second whatever, it is incredibly hard to live up to the ideals because we know Chicago still struggles. Well, chapter 12 for us in Romans is a lot like Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocking over uh, the lantern and burning Chicago to the ground. Chapter 12 is a turn where Paul is going to say, everything that I've been talking about, this idea of the gospel has consequences, has implications for the way in which we live. That is, it's not just an idea that we assent to. It's not just something that we put down in a creed. It's not something that we just say, yes, Paul, you got it. This is going to be our textbooks. Whenever we meet uh, uh, non-Christians or people who want to join the church, we're going to break out Romans. No, it is a way in which the church is to live in light of the gospel. Listen to 12.1 again, just 12.1. I appeal to you. Paul is begging his readers. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Therefore, points us back to chapter 11. It points us back because Paul has been announcing the gospel. The gospel is not an argument it's not a truth to an assent to. It is good news to be heralded. Paul has just said something incredibly profound in chapter 11 that now gives birth to chapters 12 through 16 of how we ought to live. So what is he announcing? The gospel. Well, then what is the gospel? Let's use this tree as the way in which we are to understand the gospel and its implications. First, let's understand what the gospel is. Paul just said it was a mystery in verse 25 of chapter 11. I, I don't want you to be unaware, verse 25 says, of this mystery. He's talking about the gospel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Why? In this way, all Israel is saved, Jews and Gentiles alike. Another way to ask this question 
is what in the world is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? And we can have lots of answers, but listen to Paul's answer. In another letter he wrote to Colossae, so Colossians 1, he says, God is transferring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Did you hear what he was saying? What God is doing in the world is that the world has been so trapped by sin and its implications and its consequences that it has to be rescued. And it's being rescued by being transferred from that darkness and that kingdom into his kingdom. That's good news. And it's such good news that it is to be heralded, not to be argued. But sometimes, me included, confuse what the gospel is with how it's to be accomplished or how it has been accomplished. That is, if the gospel is God transferring his people from one kingdom into another that through it we might be redeemed and have forgiveness of sins. How is that accomplished? Which is the second question. Listen again. By the mercies of God. That by matters. It's the means by which we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son by which we are redeemed and have the forgiveness of sins. That is, the cross is the means by which God transfers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. And often, the Bible will explain it in two big ideas. One is often called the great exchange. You know what an exchange is. You've been part of them. You will take something and you will trade it for someone else. Now, we're kind of moving out of the era of that you have tradespeople and you have a city people and tradespeople bring something into the city and the city gives something in exchange for the goods. We're moving out of that era and we move into services as our trade, but it's still going on this idea that you get something and I get something. It's called the great exchange because as great as those exchanges are, they're not eternal. They don't last. No matter what I get at the store, no matter what I get in the market, it won't last. Either I consume it or it rots, but it doesn't last. But this great exchange is so great that it lasts forever. And what's the great exchange? The way that Paul describes it in another letter that he has, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is that he, Jesus Christ, knew no sin. That word know is the same word that is often used when it describes relationships between a husband and a wife. He knew her and bore a child. An intimate personal knowledge. He who knew no sin, he, Jesus, who had no personal knowledge, relational, experiential knowledge of sin. Here's the word, became sin. Not that he had done sin. Think of it this way. When you sin, often it identifies who you are. If you murder somebody, you become a what? Murderer. If you steal, you become what? A thief. 
This is not what happened to Jesus. Jesus didn't murder and steal and lie and commit adultery and all those things, but he still became those things. Because legally, the judge of the cosmos, the maker of the heaven and the earth, took what we were and said, now that is who he is so that he can pay for them. That's only half the exchange. Do you remember the rest? Why did he do that? So that we might become the righteousness that comes from God. That is, a righteousness comes to us in exchange for giving our sin. And it accomplishes two things. That's the other big concept. If one is called the great exchange, the other is called the double cure. That's what Augustus Toplady was trying to communicate in uh, his hymn. That the cross is the double cure. That is, we have a problem with our guilt. Don't think of guilt as how I feel, although that would be nice. But it's who I am. That I'm the murderer, I'm the thief, I'm the adulterer. And so that has to be dealt with. I'm the sinner. Our problem isn't that we sin. Our problem is that we sin because we're sinners. That had to be dealt with once and for all. The just, this is the way Hebrews says, died for the unjust. And so the, the double cure is at first it removes that status, who we are, and changes that from I am a sinner and now I've been set apart. And the biblical word for set apart is what? Holy. Isn't that what Ephesians says? I have chosen you to make you holy. We tend to think of it only in its moral sense, but most often in the Bible, it's not a moral sense, it's a positional sense. It's who you are in Christ, which is what Ephesians is all about. Paul's favorite words in Ephesians and Colossians is the two words in Christ, our union with Christ. We have the double cure so that we might have union in Christ so that our entire identity changes. But it's a double cure. It's not just guilt, but there's a power at work. That's what Paul said in chapter 6 and 7. I don't do what I want to do. I I do that which I don't want to do. And it's not me. It's sin in me. What he's describing is a power. The same thing that God said to Cain when he said uh, to him that sin is crouching at your door. There is a power and we need victory over that power, but we can't do that. So someone had to do that for us. That's how... God accomplished the gospel by the great exchange of taking our sin and giving us his righteousness, which now makes us right with God. And it becomes the double cure of both are giving us a new identity, killing the old identity. That's why it's often said, if you want to be my disciples, take up your cross. That is, take up what? Your death to the old self and now live this new self. But Paul now isn't really talking about that. He finished talking about that in chapter 11, and now he's moved on by the mercies of God. He begins, and he begins to talk about its implications. You see that again in 12.1 as we move up the ladder to its implications. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Something odd 
Something we wouldn't expect, Paul says here. Present your bodies, plural, and therefore we expect him to stay with that and say as, a, as living sacrifices, plural. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say that in the original language and it's not translated into the English the way that our minds would work. If I said all of us are going to do something, I would stay with the plural. Paul does not. He goes from plural to singular. He says, present your bodies as a single living sacrifice. The language here is the language of the temple. He's using words like uh, worship and sacrifice. He's using this idea of service, but not service in just serving in general, but specifically in the temple. And so what is a living sacrifice? It's unheard of in the ancient world. Paul is inventing a new idea. Nobody wrote about living sacrifices before Paul did. Paul takes the idea of the temple of coming and making a Thanksgiving offering, which always killed the sacrifice, and says, no, 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 that's already been done once for all. The just, Jesus Christ, for the unjust, us, have been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. No more do we need to kill our offerings. We are now living sacrifices, which is another way to say our common life together is to be lived in light of the gospel of the transferring from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. And he has modifiers for us, which is holy and acceptable, which is our act of worship. Don't read bodies that is there as talking about your physical body alone. It obviously includes that. But when Paul uses the word body here, he's encompassing the whole being. The way that Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards has this message, this sermon, and he develops around this three ideas that represent the whole. The, the three ideas is the head, the heart, and the hands. And that's his way of saying the same thing that when G, uh, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Jesus isn't dividing the human body or the human person into four categories. And neither is uh, Jonathan Edwards. It's just a way to represent the whole. God doesn't want your mind and not the rest of you. That is what the Greeks and the Epicureans believed. God just wants your mind. You can do whatever you want with your body. Your body doesn't matter. We're in the Bible. We're we're not Epicureans. We're we're not the Greeks who believed in the dualism of that there's evil and good. and, And as long as you do the right thing with your mind, evil can have your body because it really doesn't matter. God says, I want all of you. And so Paul applies the gospel implications to the whole being. And the way I want you to think of it this morning is your head, your heart, and your hands. In your head, listen, how many times he talks and mentions the mind. Be transformed, verse two, by the renewal of your mind. Verse two goes on, that you may discern what is the will of God. In verse three, do, uh, uh, to not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And, and again, in verse three, think with sober judgment. 
That is, Paul is presenting two ways of thinking. There's the thinking that the world has, and then there's the thinking uh, based on the gospel, this new kingdom that we are now part of. And in the world, the, wor- the, the thinking is centered around these three big ideas, individualism, which asks the question, isn't it all about me? There's, there has never been a more self-centered culture than the American culture that looks and says, isn't it really about me? Doesn't the world really revolve not around the sun, but through me? Or consumerism, how can I be served? That's the question of the 21st century is I know you started a coffee shop, but does your coffee shop serve what I like? I I know that there's grocery stores, but did the grocery store that I like? It's a consumerism. And then lastly, a materialism. What do I get out of it? No matter what it is and beneficial, but ultimately, what it, how does it affect me? Is it good or bad for me? But gospel thinking is very differently. Paul's, Paul's getting us to think with sober judgment about ourselves. And what does that mean? You look at all the scriptures and you begin to see how it talks about you, how it speaks about those who have been saved, those that are in the kingdom of God. I am made in the image of God. It's true about every human being, but it's not less true about you. You are created in the image of God. I am a forgiven sinner. Sometimes we forget that. We focus on I am what? A sinner. And we don't realize that we are also forgiven. I am part of God's family. I come from a university that makes much out of this idea of family. It's what the coaches around the country and sit down with parents and say, but they want to be part of the Auburn family. And he tries to explain what that means. And and, and that's what Paul's saying is you didn't just get saved from sin, from death and the wrath of God and hell. You got saved into a family but not just any family, God's family. Then he also said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, which is Paul's way of saying, you're no longer who you once were. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Do you realize that? If you have been saved, if you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you are not your own anymore. You never really were, but now you know that God is your king and he owns every square inch of you. But I'm also an ambassador for Christ. That's one of the things that Nathan was getting at in 2 Corinthians 5.20. I'm an ambassador to Christ, imploring. That word is begging. It's not arguing. It is begging on behalf of Christ for others to be reconciled. But he also talks about the heart, not just the head. He doesn't want this just to be a thinking issue. He wants it also to be inside and how we feel. Notice how the language of the heart here, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, verse three, in proportion to faith, verse six. In verse eight, the one who leads with what? Zeal, that's passion. In verse eight, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
In verse 9, love be genuine, abhor. That's word for hate, what is evil. In verse 10, love one another with brotherly what? Affection. In verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient. Why all this language of the heart? Because Christianity at the heart is about the heart. Because it's about transformation. Changing your thinking will not change you. It's necessary for transformation. But there's also a changing of what you believe in your heart. And so Paul is saying, we make the invisible visible. If you want to know what the mission of the church is, it is to make what is invisible about the new kingdom visible. We pray that in the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. We make these kingdom values, these consequences, these implications visible for people to see. Therefore, our life together provides evidence of transformation. We talk about healing, about brokenness and finding healing. But if we have not been healed, if we are not seeing transformation, therefore we give no picture of what that would even look like. And now we are not just to treat one another differently, but we're also to treat the most vulnerable in our community differently. That matters. To a cynical and skeptical culture, what the church loves is important and how we love. Watching how we treat those that are most vulnerable. Obviously, we need to do that in the church. If we're not doing it in the church, it doesn't matter if we're doing it outside the church. But let's assume we're doing it in the church. We also need to consider how we're handling the most vulnerable among us outside the church. The church reputation was that not only that they took care of their own poor, but our poor too. Not only uh, did they take care of their sick in the plagues, but after we abandoned the city, they came in and took care of our dying at their own peril. Yes, we stand up for the unborn. Yes, yes. If that is a question in someone's mind that the church is not to stand up for the unborn, then that's our fault for not being clear. But there's so much more than just the unborn. When we only stand up for one vulnerable person, one vulnerable category, what do we communicate? That the rest don't matter. There's lots. There's a lot of vulnerable people in our culture. And right or wrong, the church's reputation, particularly the evangelical church, is that we're intolerant. And you can say, that's just not true. You can say it all day long. But that's our reputation. How do you change a reputation? We have to change. It's not demanding those on the outside change their view of us. It's about us. If we want to see their view change. The last one is hands. Notice the action words. Verse 6 again. Having gifts, let us use them. 
Verse 7, you say, well, I don't know my gift. We've got tests. We've got ways to help you identify. And I, I think the most effective way for you to identify your gift is not take a test. Get involved. Find a ministry. And if it doesn't work, then change it and try another one. Verse 7, serving and teaching. Somewhere we've gotten along in the world and we have communicated that this is a consumer environment. Somewhere we need a sign. This is not a place to consume, but to be consumed by the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ and by our sweet, beloved King. But not to come in here and say, hey, I've got these little kids. Can you take care of them? Or I don't like that Sunday school. I want that one. Or I want this small group that meets my needs. That's consumerism. And the way to deal with that is just serve. Find a place and fill the need. He goes on exhorting, giving mercy in verse eight. In verse eight, he says, the one who acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In verse nine, hold fast to what is good. In verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. In verse 12, be constant in prayer. And please don't skip over that as if it's no big deal. Show hospitality in verse 13. Christianity does not just involve the mind and the heart, but also the whole person. And therefore, the gospel has implications because ideas have consequences. If you believe the gospel and it has not radically changed your life, I wonder, do you believe the same gospel? And so this review of the gospel tree that I want you to see is, what is the gospel? God is transferring people, his people, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, where we find redemption and the forgiveness of sins. How does he accomplish that gospel? Through the cross. And therefore, there are implications on how we live communally together as the people of God right here at EP. EP's uh, uh, own projection of the kingdom values is our common life together as a living sacrifice where we make the invisible values of this kingdom visible. We've been developing this idea of a straight line and I'll end here. I know I've gone a little bit long, but I'll I'll fix it at the end. (laughs) Bruce, don't promise what you cannot deliver. This idea that instead of everything, we want everybody in our church to be involved in these three things because we believe the gospel goes down deep into those roots, into your soul by worshiping together where we focus. Somebody asked, why do we focus so much of the gospel in in worship? It is because it speaks to both the Christian because that's how you grow, but also the one who is outside the church that comes in here because they're either your friend or somehow they think that there's an answer here. It's the same gospel. But you and I need a place to work that out, a place where we can flesh that out and be challenged in our faith and our application and those implications, that's renew. These small groups that we're about to kick off in a month. 
And then finally, this is one of the reasons why we've been praying for, working for, and hoping that we can begin to focus on the mission. But before we could focus on the mission, we had to get these other two in a way that they were helpful and understandable to all of us. And this idea that we all should be in mission together into our community where God has placed us. And we're trying to figure out how Sunday school plays. One of the incredible things, I think, of this summer schedule, whether we keep it or not, is this idea that Sunday school can be a place where we train people for the mission. I think that's so exciting and so strategic for us to do. May God capture our hearts. And if, if you're in worship but nothing else, take us just one step to the right. Get involved in Renew Groups. We'll be announcing those this fall and how you can sign up. Maybe you're in worship and you're in Renew Groups, but you're not into mission. Take a step to the right. Ask Nathan how you can be involved in the mission. That's his job. But it's all of our jobs. There's things that are going on in the Naval Academy. There's things going on on Woodside Gardens. There's things going on in people's neighborhoods. There's things that are, that are going on all over the place for you to get involved in. So I pray that's what we do as a church. So let me do that now and pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the beauty of this place. I thank you for your love and your kindness to us. I thank you that you've teaching us and changing us and, and conforming us into the image. We thank you that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son by the cross. And you're changing everything about that, about us, about our community, about how we communicate to our community, standing up for the vulnerable, taking care of widows and orphans inside the church and outside the church, so many ways. We're thankful that you're awakening our church to the implications of the gospel we believe. And we pray in Jesus' name that you make it so. Amen.